Hey everybody, welcome back to the macro trading floor. I guess you missed us for a week, but here we are again. This is Alf speaking, and as always with me, Andreas Stino, and it's great to see you again, Alf. Um, sadly, we missed last week, but uh, we're back live on air after an amazing week in uh, global central banking. Uh, with a lot of action to discuss and also a lot of volatility for the portfolios out there. So, Elf, um, I mean, I've been stuck uh, central bank watching all week. Um, and I think the overwhelming conclusion from my side is that I'm still a little bit surprised that central banks are as unwilling as they are to throw in the towel on this inflation fight. So... Um, why don't we discuss the three major central banks out this week and uh, the message sent from, from each of them. Let's start with the Fed and I'll, I'll allow you to unpack how you uh, viewed the message from the Fed. Is it a pause, Alf? Mm -hmm. I think we called this one right uh, yeah. very early, somewhere in April, very much out of consensus that the Fed was going to pause. They did pause. The problem is when you pause, markets tend to go through the roof because the <laughs> uncertainty around Fed policy dissipates, right? What uncertainty? You're not doing anything anymore. And when you reduce volatility across asset classes, people like to take risks. You know, after all, we haven't had a recession yet um, and you become predictable. So what Powell had to do is to sound as hawkish as you can so people would pay attention, hopefully, to his words somehow as well, and not only to his action, because the action is a pause. And now the interesting part they did is not only they talked hawkish, but they added two more hikes in 2023 to the dot plot, right? And, you know, two hikes is a median base case. More for 2023 sounds very aggressive. But look... I mean, I've heard, I don't know, many people discuss the dot plot. The dot plot is the most useless and overhyped Fed tool out there. I, I think I, I shared a chart with clients that showed the dot plot at December 2021. Mm. By 2023, end of 2023, you would have had Fed funds at 1.5%, according to the Fed. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to see where you are today, you need to extend the y-axis of the chart all the way up to five, and we are in June. So, you know, the Fed does the dot plot with the information they have available. And in this case, it's a posturing exercise, the way I see it. You know, they try to, you know, make investors be a bit aware of loading up into risk to make sure they don't loosen financial conditions too much. The Fed doesn't want that either. But honestly, Andres, I don't think they will make it. I mean, honestly, I think they paused there. And the way I see data coming forward, I would not be surprised this was actually the last hike. Um, so I, I, I don't think they are going to manage to kill animal spirits. No, I, I, um, I tend to agree with that assessment. I mean, this is central banking uh, 101, right? Um, if you tell people explicitly that this is a pause, uh, you and I and everyone else out there will start extrapolating the trend into rate cuts almost immediately, right? Um, so you need to, to be able to orchestrate a pause, if that is truly your scenario, you need to keep an embedded hiking bias to try and yeah. prevent people from pricing in cuts immediately, right? Uh, and you could argue that the, it was essentially the... Uh, major task for, for Powell on Wednesday, and he probably succeeded okay. 
uh, with with that message. Um, uh, a lot of the feedback that I've received over the week here from uh, from institutions and hedge funds, etc., is that they are, they are unwilling to take the contrarian view that um, the, the next move is a cut, given how they communicate it. Uh, at least they need to see. A, if not a landslide, then at least a, a sharp deterioration in data uh, to be willing to take on that bet. And I kind of get that, uh, but as you as you um, perfectly allude to here, one of the reasons for um, the lack of risk-taking basically since, say, uh, early 22 or thereabout is the extreme volatility that we've seen in the move index and in interest rates in, uh, overall. And I mean, given how most um, investment models are, are designed, you you simply dislike taking investment decisions with a lot of embedded risk in a scenario where you don't know just plus minus one basis, uh, sorry, one percentage point where the terminal rate is. Uh, and now we have much more clarity on that, I'd say, meaning that I think a lot of real money players out there, they're caught behind the curve in terms of risk taking here. They're still uh, positioned below benchmarks on equities, for example, uh, too much cash. Uh, so I guess the first reaction here is that we should celebrate it in equity terms. I can picture some of my former colleagues uh, at other institutions as well, real money colleagues, getting a couple of taps on the shoulder by treasurers, CIOs, etc. be like, dude, do you have risk on your book? No, because, you know, recession or this or that or commercial real estate or banking crisis, all of these are valid concerns, if you ask me. Yes. Uh, but, you know, if you underperform by being net short against the amount of risk you're supposed to take in your benchmark or elsewhere, you can only do that as much. I mean, yeah. as, as a friend would say, you don't get fired to be long Google or Microsoft, at least as much as your benchmark asks you to be long Google and Microsoft. And that's, I mean, it sounds very far-fetched, but it's a bit how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, low volatility drugs in more flows and more flows tend to make stuff outperform and people that are left behind have to catch up to that, basically. And one interesting thing I've been noticing is there has been a bit of reach for um, upside optionality, which is generally an interesting development when the market has already rallied. Because what tells me is there are some people out there that clearly aren't allocated enough to match this rally. So instead of going and allocating, they try to find cheaper way in terms of notional spend to go and chase the rally, which is they basically buy upside optionality. They buy call options. So if you look at stuff like the SKU, which sounds very scary, but it's not. It's just basically the difference, or let's say the excess cost that investors are willing to pay to buy puts against calls. Well, they're not willing to, <laughs> to spend a lot more on puts than they are on calls nowadays. So basically the SKU is as low as it has been in a lot of time, which you know basically tells you that People are getting relaxed. They're getting dragged in. They're buying upside optionality. And it's uh, it's just natural. It's part of a trend with low volatility, a predictable Federal Reserve. And I mean, un until you get data that disproves the Goldilocks environment where apparently we're in with below trend growth, inflation converging slowly but surely in core terms, core services, ex-housing, whatever Powell is looking mm. at, we should look at that too. 
if you get this Goldilocks data, uh, I think it's, you need you need something to dissuade markets from doing trades that two months ago they didn't want to do, but now they are kind of forced to. Yeah, yeah, it's as simple as that, and every positioning survey and also actual positioning data out there still shows that a lot of people have been uh, left at the <laughs> and left behind basically on this rally and um, it makes it very difficult to just sit there and watch it um, and I think it's basically as simple as that right now the, the question here is Elf and I've discussed that with a lot of sparing partners over the week is whether is it is it actually a prerequisite for a recession that we get a lot of risk taking ahead of it <laughs> um, and I, I, I tend to buy into that narrative a bit because, I mean, f- for a recession to happen, you, you basically need some sort of external trigger or shock. And it's much easier to get that shock as everyone is convinced that it will not happen, right? Um, now that we've had a, at least a couple of quarters of very conservative risk-taking, it's just tricky to surprise people on the downside, um, spurring uh, like risk-averse decision-making among uh, managers, etc. So... Maybe this is what we need to get that recession that everybody has been waiting for. <laughs> it's very extent. interesting narrative. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and look at 2006, late 2006, the Fed paused, actually for a lot of time back then, I think 15 months or more of actual pause. And, you know, the market in 2007 was pretty solid risk-taking all over the place. Like in the mid of 2007, emerging markets had a brilliant run. I'm talking about 30, 40% upside in some of these emerging markets. You don't see that happening very often, don't you? I mean, that's a sign of a very broad, diversified risk-taking going on. And then we got the 2008 warning, let's say, which was the collapse of the, let's say, the first banks um, in the in the US, especially those that were more related to the housing uh, situation over there. And, you know, the market shrugged that off pretty quickly. Yeah. And we had another rally until we finally realized it wasn't only one bank. Now, obviously, this time can be something else. It, you know, maybe it's not bank related, but I think the pattern you're highlighting, it's interesting. It's like, you know, people get a scare, but then nothing happens. And then they they run back to risk because, hey, I have no choice. My neighbor is getting richer. The other asset manager is at benchmark or above benchmark is making money. I'm left behind. I'm losing allocations. I need to go and buy that. And it might be that uh, people need to be very relaxed to surprise them on the downside. Actually, at least the pattern of 2007 might resemble that. Yeah. I tend to agree. And then we uh, we can maybe discuss the liquidity outlook again uh, in conjunction with this because we discussed a few weeks back that uh, the overnight reverse repo would sort of swallow um, a lot of the issuance in, in T-bills from, um, from the US Treasury now that they're allowed to net issue debt again. And I mean, so far, so good. Liquidity is actually doing pretty okay. Um, we should expect the overnight reverse repo to swallow, say, 75% up, up, up towards such a target of, of net issuance of T-bills, meaning that dollar liquidity is not dwindling uh, to any major extent uh, over the next four to six weeks here. But on the other hand, I am much more concerned about euro liquidity, to be honest. Uh, and w- one uh, reason why is that... Um, we now know that uh, TLTROS will run out in size uh, by the end of June. Um, roughly uh, $600 billion worth of liquidity will be withdrawn from euro markets. And the European Central Bank actually uh, went 
all in on QT, uh, at least in the APP part of the QE program. Uh, they have two separate programs, obviously, and they have the flexibility left and the one um, uh, related to the pandemic. But overall, this is a pretty material um, deterioration of liquidity conditions in, in the Eurozone, and they don't have an overnight reverse repo to rely on to counter such effects. You could also always argue whether it's an issue, but uh, what we do know is that Italian banks have taken up a lot of these teltros, so they will need to find new reliable funding sources. Um, what we also do know is that um, liquidity is, is probably more relevant uh, to some European countries than others um, uh, from a market perspective. And I wouldn't be super surprised to see a bit of uh, choppiness and credit um, in a negative sense over the course of the summer in Europe, just as a consequence of this. So on Europe, I uh, have a different angle on TLTRO. So one of the reasons why banks took off the TLTROs in Europe was because, well, funding was extremely cheap. And second, mm. to achieve that extremely cheap funding, you just needed to roll over your loan book. You didn't have any material benchmark to beat. It was enough to have zero net lending or just rolling over your loan book to meet the criteria for obtaining the cheap funding. So what that means is, of course, some of the banks have taken on the TLTRO. They had already a plan to roll over the cheap funding. They had different sorts of funding. So they ended up with carry trades. They took the money from yeah, the ECB as a cheap funding and they ended up buying two-year BTPs or something like that. Mm. The first thing I have to say is, Having been in a bank, having done exactly these trades, you normally tend to match the maturity of the TLTRO with the maturity of your purchase. Mm. Now, because you're repaying early, in this case, there might be a bit of a mismatch, maybe six, to, six months to one year, where your liability is gone, your funding is gone because you're repaying it back, but your asset still is there, right? So a lot of people have told me, well, that means banks must sell BTPs now because the funding source is gone. That's not true. Banks don't need to sell them because they can replace the funding through repos, for example. So they can just get funding in repo. Selling a bond for a bank also materializes the PL of that mm. position. And bank treasuries are not really in the business of creating a lot of PL volatility by selling bonds. So, however, I look at it, I think banks are just going to, I mean, first of all, they knew they would repay early, I mean, a lot in advance, so they hopefully they have prepared through some bridge repo transactions, you would see material pressure in the repo market if there was a flood of money looking for mm. repo funding. And I don't see that. So I think it's, you know, it's been a bit managed by banks. I mean, we always attack banks and the risk management, but I think in this case, it was very well telegraphed. And I think the there the, the situation isn't as dramatic. I think treasurers have done a bit of their homework and replaced funding a bit. Uh, what is generally a bit more interesting is, okay, you have the European bond market without the support of central banks, with actually QT ongoing. And, you know, you're in a situation where spreads are already extremely tight. I think BTP boons is at, you know... <laughs> multi-year lows, it's really trading tight. So you have to ask yourself, where is the appetite going to come from? Who's going to buy uh, these bonds and these credit spreads? And there I agree with you at a level that isn't attractive, historically speaking, with, the, with QT going on, without having the central bank on your back 
that acts as a buyer and crowds out other investors, which was the case in Europe for like 10 years. So that concerns remain, but I think the liquidity story, especially the TLT role replacement story, might be a bit overdone. Mm. Uh, at least you're right that by the time of uh, of this podcast, it is essentially well known that uh, TL trolls will be paid back in size by the end of June. Uh, and I mean, markets would likely have panicked if <laughs> we would have, give, uh, have gotten a large replacement flow uh, over the next couple of weeks here. So obviously this is, this is, this is managed uh, to a large extent. The, the question in, 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 in my perspective is whether net issuance uh, from uh, European sovereigns will be trickier to swallow for markets on an ongoing basis from uh, from the second half and, and onwards, uh, which which is a fair concern. Um, we just we just don't have that smoking gun, that trigger that really could uh, uh, spiral, spreads out of control. We've seen such triggers being political uh, oftentimes in Europe, and one thing I have on my radar is the Spanish election. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how markets will react if the Spanish election uh, ends up in a result where the uh, uh, Vox party will be part of the coalition. Uh, at least it resembles some scenarios that we've seen in Italy. Um, so that could be one trigger event. Uh, but what I'm saying here is that the conditions for a spike in spreads in Europe uh, are starting to be there when we get a trigger. Yeah, I think I that's think fair the, to say. You know, if you look at carry trades. Now, they're so popular in a situation where there's low volatility and a lot of predictability. Well, you know, credit spreads are a typical carry trade. You buy them and then if nothing happens, you just cash in the credit spread basically and you often roll down the curve as well profitably. Mm. That's great. Yeah, but the, obviously the level at which you purchase is credit spreads is also important, first, because it determines the carry you're making, and second, because it determines how much money you can lose if you mm. start from a too tight credit spread. And I think, you know, we are at tight levels, so it doesn't take much. And this is true as well for other carry trades or equity risk premium compression trades. The Goldilocks scenario is now quite well priced. The narrative is quite strong that there is nothing to worry about. I mean, we haven't had a news on regional banks for I don't know, a couple of months now, uh, the housing market seems to have found somehow a low bottom, but still a bottom. You don't get a lot of negative headlines. You get investors to be crowded in. You get credit spreads very tight. So it doesn't take much to move the needle now once you, you really cement the Goldilocks narrative. And that's true for European credit spreads as well. I think they fall in the same basket. Question on the ECB for you. Um, it was funny yesterday to hear Lagarde saying that, you know, we are not done. We have a lot of room to cover. And I can tell you that in July, we're going to hike. Mm. Yeah, we know that. I mean, it's already in markets. You're not saying anything new. The question is, what about September? So then it's, uh, let's try to make that a call. ECB in September, 25 basis point hike or no hike? No. <laughs> the funny thing is, one thing is certain here in life, and that is we get a story either on Reuters or Bloomberg within 30 minutes of a press conference at the ECB every single time with someone saying that we haven't agreed to anything in September. That was why she couldn't say anything. And it was very clear that she couldn't say anything about September because they discussed it and they couldn't agree. Um, so at least they're very split on that decision. And 
Whether they will have a, a formal opinion on that already in July is, is probably debatable, since September is one of those meetings where they will update projections again. And let me rant for a second on the projections from the European Central Bank yesterday. Um, Lagarde sneaked out during the press conference that the cutoff date was the 23rd of May for the inflation and growth forecasts. Meaning that uh, they haven't taken the very, very soft May inflation report into account in the forecasting process. Uh, so I, uh, I've checked it with sources I've known. Uh, I know within these and also people who have worked there before. Uh, and, and in such a case, they don't start all over. Um, so they, they just set that aside and say, well, it doesn't change our assumptions. Uh, meaning that mechanically speaking, if they did the exercise all over again today and over the next week or two, they will mechanically lower their projection again and they already know it. Uh, it, it it's almost hilarious, right? Yes. Um, and, yes. And, and sometimes transparency is just a bad thing, right? Because it, it makes us laugh at them uh, that they cannot take an inflation report um, published in between they, they, uh, the inflation forecasting process and, and the uh, a press release into account. It's just hilarious. What I'm saying here is that September, unless we get surprises, will lead to a downwards revision of inflation again. I agree. So M I'm, Meaning I'm, that, I'm, I mean, they will not hike. I really look forward to them revising their projections down for core inflation in September. At least my <laughs> models are saying that core inflation in Europe is going to trend down and that, you know, we are having a disinflationary process starting in Europe exactly on clock, six to eight months later when it started mm. in the US. I mean, it's just what it is, and the, the cycle is lower in Europe. It takes a little bit longer, but it's going to happen in Europe as well. So now they come up with big revisions to, uh, to core CPI. Funnily, the market is like, oh my God, the ECB forecasts higher inflation. I got to sell my bonds. Mm. Dude, the ECB has been wrong forecasting inflation for two years straight. They literally never got it right. Never. So tell me, what is your basis to assume that because the ECB thinks core inflation is going to be higher, you got to sell fixed income and reprice ECB terminal rates higher, etc. Here, it's about actual data coming in, I think. That's true for the Fed. That's true for the ECB. That's true for the Bank of England. That's true for the Bank of Japan. It's all about actual data coming in. And, you know, I tend to agree with you. I don't, I think we have peaked when it comes to inflation in Europe and also core inflation. The disinflationary trend has started. I find it extremely funny to, you know, give credibility to ECB forecasts as a reason to be short bonds because, you know, you've got to get actual inflation right. And I think inflation is going to come in soft in Europe as we have seen it coming soft in the US. Something we haven't discussed, uh, but just to jump back, you know, there is a joke, I think with the, I think there is Krugman that sends out a chart every time there's an inflation report that says, hey, this is inflation X shelter, X whatever. There was a guy that said, core inflation X, autos, food, energy, shelter, everything, and it's zero. You know, it's just a flat line. If you, if you <laughs> extrapolate everything out of inflation, then inflation is zero. But apart from jokes, um, the inflation that Powell is focusing on has been annualizing at 3% for now three months or six months. Mm. So is 3% the Fed target? No, not yet. Is it much better than the 6.5-7% it was annualizing only a few months ago? Yes, it is much mm. better. It makes Powell much happier, if you ask yeah. me. So in, in terms of inflation jokes, uh, one of my clients uh, 
chatted uh, with me on Bloomberg earlier this week when I posted the so-called Powellflation chart uh, with a, a slight downtrend in um, in the core services X shelter because it is downtrending and it just said thank you thank God I'm homeless <laughs> as a response to that right it's uh, he calls it the homeless basket but I mean in 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 any case I think the Fed is well aware that the the way that they conduct the um, uh, the pricing methodology on on housing makes them lack actual developments, and that's why they want to guide markets' attention in other directions, basically. So the news of the day, as we record on the 16th of June, is that there is no news in Japan. Yeah. That's the other central bank we need to talk about. Uh, before we do that, if you have listened to us for 24 minutes, great, well done. Um, we have something to say at the end of the podcast. Mm. So you have done 24 do another 15, 20. Come on, bear with us. Mm. Said that Japan, um, there is nothing new in Japan. <laughs> I think Weda is like Yellen in 2015, 2016, 17 in the US. You remember, especially 17, when she said, I, I want to run the labor market hot. I want to run the economy hot. I think this is not very different than that, to be honest. I think Wada took the helm and he saw, you know, some signs that wage growth is going higher and inflation is going higher. But, dude, we're talking about Japan here. So <laughs> inflation going higher in Japan is always a big question mark. And I think he just wants to make sure that it's really a consolidated pattern. So he runs the economy hot. You know, nominal growth in Japan is running at what? I think 6% annualized or so. Um, and he says, you know what, I'll, I'll make it run hotter for a bit. And then at that point, there will be a higher chance that inflation has consolidated around 2%. Mm. And only at that point, I will think about moving. Yeah. And that's a bit frustrating for people because we've started talking about Weda moving in basically, well, we've talked about Kuroda moving as the last move of his mandate and he didn't. And then Weda, attempt number one, he didn't. Attempt number two, he didn't. So I guess people are getting frustrated. Uh, what's your take on Japan? Um, I mean, one thing is to watch a press conference from a central bank in a language that you understand. When I try to watch the press conference from Japan, um, it, it, um, it's, it's a long and boring uh, session, but never mind. Uh, I, I don't really get the vibe that he's, he's um, a guy willing to rock the boat, and I have to just admit and throw in the towel that I started speculating in him wanting to, to set a new direction and all that. And I mean, there are basically no signs of it. The only way that I can still somehow at the back of my head keep this story alive, that he may be willing to change something, is to accept the notion that when you want to remove a yield curve control, you cannot give any whatsoever prehens of doing it before actually doing it, more or less, right? Uh, that is the rule of the uh, Swiss National Bank, basically. They also pulled the rock from under the Euro-Swiss floor uh, without telling anyone about anything, because that's the only way you can do it. So if he really wants to do it, um, they might be preparing it uh, within a little bit very small group in Bank of Japan and all of a sudden surprise everyone because it's the only way to do it. But do I have any whatsoever feeling that he's planning on that? No. I have to admit that now. And and I, you can watch the yen now. Uh, I, I've been in and out of yen a few times this year. Uh, also traded it on the wrong side uh, during the early parts of the spring. And one thing is certain here. 
it is extremely expensive to be wrong for too long in this trade, which is why people have now accepted that if you want some exposure to Japan, why not just do it in Nikkei? Yeah. Look, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the headlines we're getting from the, the conference were really fun. Um, so, of course, he, he does nothing. And then he, he knows that by doing nothing and running the economy hotter, the price you have to pay is that the, the risk that the yen devaluates further and further. And mm. you also don't want that, right? You want stability in your effects. So, Bank of Japan, Weida need to pay due attention to FX developments. What is due attention? I mean, the guy's trying to be as vague as he can effectively. And then the cherry on the cake was a big shift in inflation view could lead to policy changes. Thank you very much. But you basically are left there wondering what is the hurdle for Weda to feel happy about inflationary pressures. He's not giving you any yardstick. He's yeah. being as big as possible. And I think he learned that from Kuroda, who also has a history of, <laughs> of pulling the trigger without any warning. So in Japan, it's become uh, tricky, I think, to trade the yen. You know there is a bit of a line in the sand, maybe 142, 43 against the dollar. They'll do some verbal intervention like they did a couple of weeks ago. Will it work? Maybe, maybe not. Um, mm. You have U.S. macro that is weakening and softening, so that helps in general the yen. On the other hand, you have interest rate differentials. They don't help the yen. So it's really like you have a pull and push in this mm. narrative. And I do agree with you. It's a bit easier to look at stuff like... Japanese banks, you know, things that would, for instance, benefit from a removal of the yield curve control. But if you don't get the removal of the yield curve control, the economy is still running pretty okay in Japan and banks tend to do fine in that case. So, you know, I think you have to do, look at it a bit more in an orthogonal fashion rather than mm. just binary yes or no, because otherwise you just pulled right and left and stopped out the yeah. whole time. What yeah. else are you, um, are you watching that is not Europe, Fed, Japan. So I've entered the widow mega trade this week. Which is? Chinese real estate. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. Uh, even my wife said no to that trade. But <laughs> I, I, I mean, so when I get... The first thing I've been met by every time I've opened my Bloomberg terminal 7 a.m. European time every morning this week was a new story that now they're trying to prop up demand for uh, for real estate again. Uh, they're trying to um, uh, manufacture new infrastructure projects in highly indebted regions uh, via some of these special bonds they typically uh, issue, etc. I really get the vibe that they're, they're now back to their good old policy plan of just building some more ghost towns and see whatever happens. Uh, and uh, do I find it to be a viable strategy over time? No, but it's been it's been running like hell that trade this week. So I've actually entered it pretty, a pretty neat timing here. Um, so let's see. I mean, as long as we get that push uh, narrative-wise every single day from the authorities trying to leak stuff to right, left, and center of, uh, of new stimulus coming to the construction sector, I'm long. Uh, so I know it's a way to make a trade, but I, I think I have some momentum to write here. Look, it's uh, the China story is quite interesting because if they do the usual construction thingy, infrastructure thingy, 
I don't think you go very far from a medium term perspective. But the sentiment that becomes so bad a few weeks ago that basically anything you throw at it now, you know, wakes up the market also because everything is rallying, Andreas. Everything, yeah. everything. Just name something, it's probably rallying. So then China was basically one of the few markets uh, really left behind and it doesn't take much to move the needle. More structurally, I, I look at the package and it's like, uh, when you read stuff in uh, Chinese renminbi, it, it looks like a lot. One trillion of Chinese uh, renminbi special bond issuance. And, you know, it's, it's like $200 billion, even less than that. Uh, mm. It's not much, to be honest, for the size of the Chinese economy. It's not much. And, uh, you know, infrastructure spending. So ghost towns, ghost bridges, and, you know, uh, make housing, make buying houses easier. Dude, you slaughtered Chinese people last year. I mean, house prices have declined massively. People have lost a ton of money. I, I'm not sure that making it easier for them to buy houses again is going to convince them that buying houses is the right thing to do here. So, I don't know. It looks like a bit what we have seen in the past. And this, I don't think consumers are very happy to participate in this kind no. of stimulus. Fiscal would make all the difference in the world. Because, you know, fiscal is, you don't, you don't have the credit demand side of things. You literally slosh people with money straight, directly. You cut their taxes, you send checks at homes. China has basically never done something like this in the past. So this would be something very orthodox, for, very unorthodox for them. It's a bit like the, uh, a shark devaluation of the renminbi. And I don't know if they're ready for this. I think they're just ready to do more of the good old same so as a tactical trade, I get it. I get that everything else is rallying. And if these guys shout a bit more from the rooftops, then more people will get in China, I guess. Uh, but more structurally, is this the direction that makes the difference for the Chinese economy? No, I don't think so. No, no, no. I tend to agree with that. So um, let's see whether I'm out of the trade already in a week. Now <laughs> If it's a tactical trade, it can yeah. be as good as a change in sentiment. You know, you don't need to be right. You just need to believe that more people will get into the trade. And as yeah. they do, you know, you, you can make some money. Yeah. The so-called, let's see if there's a bigger idiot out there than me <laughs> strategy, right? <laughs> but um, anyway, Elf, um, I think we've covered the, a lot of ground here, uh, both Europe, the US, and uh, and Asia. And... Um, Maybe it's time to um, elaborate a bit on the message that uh, we promised our listeners here. Let's do that. So, are you ready? This is big. No, I'm just joking. Um, so the macro trading floor has been a great run. It's been a lot of fun and you guys have supported us. It's been great. Uh, I have decided that because the amount of workload I have, especially on stuff I'm working for the Macro Compass has become quite demanding, uh, we are going to hit the pause button on the macro trading floor here. Um, so we're going to do a few more episodes. I don't know, a few more, depending mm. on what happens in markets. So you're going to hear from us for a few more weeks. Uh, but at that point, you are not going to hear from us anymore. Um, so from my end, there are now a few things that you can do to keep hearing from us separately, but I will let Andreas first elaborate on what happens on his end. 
So, um, first of all, all the best wishes, Alf. It's been a pleasure uh, doing this with you, and I look forward to the last few episodes here. Um, and just for the sake of it, me and Alf, we're still great friends, and we uh, hopefully see each other this summer also live, etc. But uh, never mind. Um, I, I plan on continuing podcasting every Sunday, um, and to make it extremely simple, I will launch the podcast Macro Sunday. It's macro every Sunday, uh, and I will um, host a load of guests, uh, including um, some from my own team. Um, I've built a team of, of roughly uh, 10 analysts now, so uh, you'll see a range of, of people covering various topics. And I can guarantee you that uh, we are as actionable as ever. So macro Sunday, and we'll put the link to the new RSS feed below here, it will premiere as of today. Um, and on top of that, um, Feel very free to also follow us directly on our research platform. Uh, it's at stenoresearch.com, and uh, we'll provide you with the discount code MACRO30 uh, to, um, to tempt you to join us at the Steno Research platform, where we will also publish videos, podcasts, etc. Uh, you'll also find the link and the discount code in the description below here. Elf, back to you. So, guys, first of all, it's been a true pleasure here uh, podcasting this with Andreas for over a year and having so much positive feedback from you guys. So thanks for all the support. Now, two messages for you. If you think you're going to miss what I have to say every Sunday on the macro trading floor, fair enough. If you're an institutional investor, we have a bespoke service for you. We provide dedicated research and trade ideas, leveraging on my experience, running money and losing money. Basically, I've been already in your seat before. That might add a bit of an edge. All the research and the trade ideas is also available in podcast and audio format, basically like on the macro trading floor. If you're interested in that kind of product, send me an email at pro at macrocompass.com. If you're not an institutional investor and you think you'll miss my analysis as well, that's fair enough. You know where to find me. It's on macrocompass.com. You'll find all the products there. Thanks, Alf. And... Um... I'll guess I'll still see you next week. Uh, we'll do a few more episodes. We don't promise how many, um, but uh, we'll leave that as a cliffhanger for next Sunday. So always great chatting to you, Elf. Um, let's see whether the macro landscape has more uh, surprises uh, for us next week. Talk to you guys. 